0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So if you open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, I want to read again the 7th ...letter in this series to the seven churches of Asia. This is the letter to the church at Laodicea. And what we're doing is we're opening the pastor's mail. That is the pastor of the church at Laodicea... ...to see what the Lord has to say about his church. The letter is addressed to that pastor. Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write... These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing." And knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. This is the last church on the divine postal route. There are six other churches that have received letters from the Lord, and each one of those letters reflects the spiritual condition of churches, not only in the time that those were written, but also in our time today. Some of the letters are very good. Some of them are less so. Some of them are terrible. And this one is the worst, and I believe that it reflects, mostly reflects, the churches of our day and time. Asia Minor was in ancient Turkey, uh, in modern-day Turkey I should say, and this is the area where the Apostle Paul began his career as a missionary. He wasn't the founder of the Laodicean Church, but there are many churches of course that Paul started. He started churches in this area. And the churches that Paul started were a mixed bag of good churches and bad churches, just as we see today. Now, as he started them, as he began them, of course, they were good churches. But over time, churches have a tendency to many times turn away from the Lord. And so a good church can turn into a bad church. The New Testament epistles reflect this good and bad dichotomy as the Apostle Paul commends some of the churches that he began, but he rather rather strongly rebukes some of the others. Some of them were true to the Gospel Commission, some weren't. There were some that reached out to other towns, and they also began New Testament churches, and that's most likely what happened with the foundation or the beginning of the Laodicean church. That It began out of another church and could have started from a nearby Colossae, the church that was in that city. Paul never visited Colossae, nor did he visit Laodicea, but he did have a very faithful companion by the name of Epaphras, who had a ministry in the Colossian church, and most likely he is the one who started the church at Laodicea. He evangelized the Lycus Valley, where both uh, the cities of Colossae and and, uh, Laodicea were located. So these new churches were Like the more established ones, as they began, they had their ups and their downs, but as we're reading here in Revelation, this is 30 years after those churches had begun, and now this church at Laodicea is at a point where it's nearly unrecognizable as a Christian church. The sliding scale from good to bad is reflected throughout these letters to the seven churches. In chapter 2, it begins with Ephesus, that was a very strong doctrinal and and moral congregation, but one that had, had lost the focus of its ministry. The center of the church is Jesus Christ, but at Ephesus, that focus had shifted away from Christ. It was strong on doctrine, strong on morality, but not strong about the power that was behind both of those. And when the focus shifts from being on Christ, the wheels of the church start to loosen and it's not long before they come off. In each of these churches that the Lord rebukes, the focus is steadily declining until we reach the problem of Laodicea, a church that is so far off from Christ that Christ is now found outside of the church. He's on the other side of a door and Christ is not welcome to enter that door. That is the deterioration of the church. And since these are letters to real churches, and since they are intended to reflect churches of this day, then we should be able to find good churches and bad churches, and we will find some churches that are like the church at Laodicea. Somewhere in Roanoke Park, and in Santa Rosa, in San Francisco, and across this state, and this country, we will find churches that are like the church at Laodicea. Now, from time to time, through my contact with some of these churches, I've identified them as apostate. Some may not like a style of preaching that is critical of others, but I can assure you that I have not made myself the judge and jury of what anyone believes I can only identify with what the New Testament identifies, and it's the Lord who judges, not me. We have two very enlightening commandments that came from the Apostle Paul on the subject of what we should do with good churches and bad churches. He says in, in uh, Romans 16 that we are to avoid churches that do not speak the truth. He says there in the 17th verse, Now beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine ye have learned, and avoid them. So that's one thing that we're to do. We are to avoid churches that do not teach the truth. But on the other hand, when we find churches that do speak the truth, we're to help each other. We're to join with them. Philippians 3.17, Paul said, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. So we're to mark both. We are to identify both, the good and the bad. And then we are to associate or disassociate accordingly. Now the point that I'd like to make here is that you just can't assume that all churches are good. You can't assume that all churches serve the same Lord and that the only differences between us is in the way that we choose to serve. I don't actually believe that we have an option about how we are to serve the Lord. I believe we all should serve Him in the same way. There is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. But there are many people who have the opinion that everybody's going to go to heaven. doesn't matter what you believe Matter what name of your church, doesn't matter anything, uh, those things don't matter one way or the other. Everybody is going to get to heaven. But of course, that's only an opinion. That is an unfounded opinion because the Word of God says otherwise. Now, in each of these letters, but two, there are forceful calls for repentance. The churches aren't right, and so they must repent or suffer the consequences of their rebellion. Now let me tell you why the Lord does this. It's not because the Lord is mean. It's not because he's unduly, harsh, hateful, and vindictive. Oh, there's nothing further from the Lord's intentions. He says these things and he warns people because the end is coming. A day is coming when there won't be any time left for corrections. And he doesn't want people to be in mixed-up churches where there is no gospel that's preached. He doesn't want them to be caught up in the terrible conflagration that's coming upon this world. What we read here in Revelation are the last words to churches. The Revelation begins with the last words that God has to say to the church. And as soon as you turn the page here from chapter 3 and you go into chapter 4, the church is gone. The gospel age is gone. It's all over with. And, and if the church has not repented, then people will be swept away in the judgments that will follow. Now, of course, here I use that term church very loosely because I'm speaking to a lost person who has confidence in a preacher and confidence in a church that does not preach the true gospel. They believe that because they go to church, they're safe and they're right. But the Bible says the Lord will come and he will separate separate these people from his true people and those will be cast off and they'll lose their souls in hell. So what do you think is best for me to do? Am I to identify those who preach a false gospel and say anything about it or am am I to be silent about that? Am I to tell people that you're in the wrong place and you're being taught the wrong thing? Am I to tell them that you're inside a church where Christ is not? And though you may think that you're friends with Christ, the doctrines of that church and what you believe show that you remain a stranger to Him, that you don't really know Him. I think the Scriptures are very clear about this. The preacher who stands before a congregation to preach from the Bible must give the sense of the reading of the Word of God. He must tell how that Word applies to everyone who hears. And that, in fact, is the command that comes at the end of every one of these letters. Let them hear what the Spirit of God has to say to the churches. Now, the Old Testament gives us a comparable example of the, of the responsibility to sound a warning. I'd like for you to turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Ezekiel, if you would. And in chapter three, and in Ezekiel, there is a, there's a sentinel that stands on the wall of the city, and it's his job to look at the horizon to see if the enemy is approaching. And if he sees that enemy come, coming, his duty is to sound an alarm. To tell people to watch out, to be ready, be ready to fight because that enemy is upon them. Now listen to this very solemn charge that's given to this sentry on the wall in Ezekiel chapter 3. Verse 17 says, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood will I require at thine hand. Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity. But thou hast delivered thy soul." Now, in these chapters, there is a warning that is sounded. The day of of judgment is approaching. And the Lord is compassionate to give these warnings, to let people know that time is coming. Now, he also says in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? And this is the same message that the Lord gives to the church. He finds no pleasure in destruction. And yet the Lord is bound to act in righteousness. Destruction is coming when people don't repent. And in His compassion, the Lord never says to anyone, Go away, I'm through with you, just damn you to hell. I don't want anything to do with you. The Lord doesn't act that way. Instead, He gives time to repent. He sounds the warning. He gives the truth. And then He gives time to repent. But He also says... That time is now. The time is now. The time to turn to Christ is now. And so this is my job. I have the job of being a sent- sentinel. And here we find the Laodicean church at the, at the lowest condition of the church. We find the signal here of the very worst times. Soon the page is going to turn. And then the Lord, uh, the world rather, is going to enter into chapter 4. This chapter's gone. Then comes chapter 4. And in chapter 4 you begin to see the war room in heaven with all the plans that are being made to purge the world of sin through a terrible tribulation. So I have a job to tell people this time is coming and the time to repent is now. And so if you hear me and you don't believe, someday you will be engulfed in that day of judgment. And if the Lord comes and you've heard and you don't believe, the Lord won't call again. I know there are many people who say, well, I'll believe when I see that. When I see all these things begin to happen, then I'm going to turn. Then I'll put my faith in the Lord, but not now. I'll wait till then. Then I know it's happening and I will believe. Well, you know, the assumption there is that you have power over your faith that you have power to say when you will believe, but you don't. Faith is the gift of God, and God gives it or withholds as he pleases. So now our study has brought us to the last of these seven churches, a church that's in full apostasy. This is the worst, this is the last level that began with a lost love. It started at Ephesus in chapter 2, and it ends here in Laodicea with a pretend church and an absent Christ. What is it that brought them here? Well, it wasn't a rapid fall. It wasn't something that was immediate. This is a very slow progression through the issues of four previous churches. The stages of it are lost love, compromised doctrine, relaxed morality, doctrinal heresy... Unmitigated apathy. And then finally this. There is no Christ. There's self-love. And there's pride and egotism. There's self-affirmation and self-salvation. But there's no sense at all of what these people are before a holy God. This is what we would call Oprah for president territory. This is the religion of Oprah. Today we see how the doctrine of the apostate church has taken a full swing of the pendulum from love of Christ to the love of self. And who is it that denies that we're living in a me generation? Secularism and religion have combined now to give us Oprah and Osteen on the same stage affirming each other in a joint religion. Now let me show you something before we continue this exposition in Revelation. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1. I am thankful that there are about 25 of our men and about 15 of our ladies that are regular to come to the Roman study on Wednesday evenings. And they're getting some seminary training in Romans. And I'm glad that the, we have folks that are interested in the Word of God to go down to a deeper level and to, uh, to learn in those classes. And it's, it's, it's been a joy, a privilege to teach that. But the apostate church... The worst condition of the world and the church is very much like what we read here in Romans chapter 1. Now here Paul describes a lost world that rejects the law of conscience that's been written on every person's heart. Now Romans 1 is a chapter that needs to be taken in its entirety, but our class knows that it takes weeks to discover the depths of the passage, so we can't do that this morning. I want us to just look at a few verses. The 18th verse of Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. That verse says that people suppress the truth. The things that they know to be true are deliberately pushed down because their agenda is not to please God, it's to please self. They love to worship their own God, and ultimately that God is self. In the 21st verse, "...because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was dark. Was darkened." Notice it says, "...when they knew God." Well, how did they know God? Not in salvation... But they knew God in the creation. That is, they know God by conscience, seeing things that they can't deny. That is God's eternal power and godhood that's described in verse number 20. But in their selfishness and desire to please self, they have suppressed their conscience over the reality of God and what God would have them to do. Verse number 24 says, Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Does that sound like Paul might have read today's newspaper? Did he watch the news? Did he watch religious programming on TV? Hashtag Me Too. You can call that the Hollywood hypocrisy. The vixens and the social prostitutes that parade themselves and then accuse others to take advantage of what they're selling. And what happens is that neither side is innocent in that mess. I know it's not politically correct for me to say that, but the whole mess that you read about in your papers today is a farcical joke. Verse number 26, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lusts one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Is that descriptive of our society? Now you need to read all of this, but let's look finally at, that, at verse number 28 where it says, God gave them up to a reprobate mind. The reprobate mind is debased. That is, it's past the point of knowing what's good for it. It's degenerated to the point that pleasing self destroys self. And so they pull each other apart they destroy all reason. They destroy the psyche until all reason is gone. Now here Paul is speaking of what happened in the old pagan world. This is 2,000 years ago. Today we live in the new pagan world. Listen to this quote. Neopaganism, that is new paganism, locates happiness in the unlimited satisfaction of desires... Which means the suppression of all prohibitions. Neo paganism doesn't sound any different from old paganism, does it? It's not any different than Romans 1. People don't change, only God can change them. And so, left to themselves, people spiral downward to hit the lowest base form of humanity. And that's what you watch on TV. That's what you listen to in your music. That's what you see on YouTube. That's what kids today are sending on Instagram. It's neo-paganism. The suppression of all inhibitions. Now I've taken a long time to get you here. And you want to know. What does all that have to do with the text that you read a moment ago? Well you take all that I've just said. And you slide it over into the church. And the layout of sin Church is the Christian version of all of that. Self-justification is sweeping Christianity. Self-gratification is the new sanctification. That sells books by the millions. This is paradoxical but you can call it pagan Christianity. Books from that genre cross over Uh, from the Christian market into the secular as bestsellers on each list, on either list, because the philosophy of the world and pagan Christianity is one and the same. These are the Osteen, Oprah books, and others like them. Christian discernment is zero. I wrote about this not long ago in a bulletin article, the North Bay pastor's, network had their duplicitous meeting at the Doubletree Hotel to introduce Eastern mysticism to Christian pastors. You know there was once a man in our church that argued with me that Joel Osteen's book Your Best Life Now was a good book. Where where is the discernment of God's people? We're in the Laodicean age. We have accepted the culture. The culture has encroached upon the church. And if members are not vigilant to keep that junk out, that takes over. So do you know how to combat it? Stay in the Bible. Don't wait till you get to church to hear me read it. Read the Bible at home. Read it to your children. Read it until it strengthens you against, against the devil who always wants your ear. The Laodicean church is the church on your TV. It's the church in your bookstores. And it's perfectly described in this timeless letter written 2,000 years ago. And it's just as if it was written this week. The Lord knows. He doesn't miss the target. He identifies the church in the 21st century world. Now, folks, that's the introduction to the message. It's long, but I think necessary. And this draws us back into our text. So I want to pick up where I left off in the last message at verse number 17. But let's go back and start at verse 16. Jesus said, So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing... And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I believe the first error of the church has its root in the Ephesian problem. The focus is off Christ. And so badly off from Christ that they've entered into the spiritual realm of the cults. They doubted the deity of Christ. They doubted the sufficiency of Christ. And I believe this is the reason in verse number 14 that Jesus said he is the amen, that he's the faithful and the true witness and the beginning of the creation. And I know that there are many churches that haven't gone that far off to deny the deity of Christ, but they certainly have gone far enough off that they replace Christ as the focus of the church and they replace that with self as the focus. Robert Shuler, a popular Self esteem preacher who died not long ago said, Classical theology has erred in its insistence that theology be God centered, not man centered. Here are a few quotes that shape the Laodicean Church from Robert Schuler. What do I mean by sin? Answer Any human condition or act that robs God of glory by stripping one of his children of their right to divine dignity. I can offer still another answer. Sin is any act or thought that robs myself or another human being of his or her self-esteem. He said, What we need is a theology of salvation that begins and ends with the recognition of every person's hunger for glory. And he said, Jesus never called a person a sinner. Rather, he reserved his righteous rebuke for those who use their religious authority to generate guilt and cause people to lose their ability to taste and enjoy their right to dignity. You see? The Laodicean church cares nothing about the glory of God. They change the glory of God into the glory of self. So you have Schuler, Norman Vincent Peale, Joel Osteen, and others who are purveyors of a psycho babble gospel, a me first gospel. And that gospel is described in the beginning of verse number 17 of our text. The gospel that says, I can find all I need in me. If I'm satisfied, that's God's plan for me. God wants me to be healthy and wealthy. He wants me to be glorified at the expense of his sovereignty and glory. And last week I gave you an outline of the Laodicean lie. They were a material church founded upon the materialism of their city's culture. The city was very rich. They were a commercial hub located at the crossroads of four directional trade routes in Asia Minor. And the location made them a banking center. A natural place to to make deposits and pick up money. Secondly, they produced fine garments that were made of the soft black wool of the sheep that they raised. They were fashionistas. And they made very expensive clothing that was the envy of the empire. Then thirdly, they were a medical center... And medical care is very expensive. They made a, they made a, a special eye salve for ophthalmological conditions. So they're, they're like the Mayo Clinic for eye problems. And not incidentally, they were worshipers of the healing god Asclepios. That's the one who has the symbol that you still see today with the snake that winds around the pole. That's a symbol of Asclepius. Now, from those three sources, banking, garments and medicine, the city had become fabulously wealthy. So wealthy that when an earthquake destroyed their city, they refused help from Rome to rebuild and they rebuilt the city out of their own resources. And that is the heart and the soul of Jesus' comment at the beginning of the verse. You say that you are rich and increased with goods and you have need of nothing. And what Jesus did was to apply that physical condition of the city to their spiritual condition. Jesus used this three-pronged avenue of wealth and turned that into a biting, cutting, spiritual lesson for them. Their new Christology was this. We are self-sufficient. We have all that we need. And our wealth proves that we are favored. We're self-glorified. And so why do we need Christ? True Christianity only does one thing. It serves to make us, what Schuller said a minute ago, it serves to make us feel guilty. We're okay in ourselves. We don't need to feel guilty. Christianity produces guilt. And it makes you wonder, was Schuller born in the first century? Was he born in this last century? Their quest was different than Christ, and I would submit to you that the modern church is on a different quest. Their salvation is man's glory, a gospel of greed. Now notice how Jesus' rebuke falls in line with their three strengths. You have banks, you are a trade center, you think you're rich? No, you're wretched, miserable, and poor. You have an eye salve that you sell to the world to heal your eyes. You yourselves are blind. You have famous black wool to make luxurious garments to clothe others. You are spiritually naked. And this is the spiritual condition of those who embrace the prosperity gospel. It's perfectly described in this timeless letter to the Laodiceans. They're banked, but they're wretched and poor. They're blinded by the God of greed. They're exposed, naked before God. And they've made a mess out of the gospel. There is a mess in this church. They aren't the true church. They're charlatans. They are pretenders. They're lost. They're as lost when they leave the church as they were when they went in. And so in no biblical sense are they true churches of Jesus Christ. So what Paul said to do, mark them And avoid them. So how does the Lord deal with this perverted gospel of man's glory? In the same way that he deals with the wayward. That is, they must be disciplined. And that's the third part of our outline. The discipline they must accept. First is the desire of the amen. Secondly was the disaster they allowed. Now thirdly, the discipline they must accept. Now the discipline attacks the root of their problem, which is self-sufficiency. And so what he's telling them is to get your mind off of you and go back to the mind of Christ. Go back to the right focus. Go back to the pre-Ephesian church. The way that Christ began the church and the way that Christ founded churches on these principles. That Christ is all in all. That Jesus Christ is wisdom and redemption and sanctification. And the discipline of this church covers those three areas of self-sufficiency. Now in verse number 18, he said, I counsel thee. Can I stop right there for a minute? I counsel thee. Why does he bother? Why does he bother? You You should be happy that I'm not the Lord. I have my deficiencies. I'm deficient in mercy and compassion. That's why I need to marry my wife. She makes up that deficiency. I am deficient in mercy and compassion. And I get very quickly filled with disgust with church members that try my patience. That's why I, I love Steve Miller. That's why I mentioned him a couple of weeks ago. He doesn't complain about trivial matters. He doesn't have to have a nursemaid follow him around uh, to make sure that he has all his felt needs. Thankfully, though... I had to do this for so long that, that uh, I've learned to temper my frustrations with people. And I do that by realizing that I'm also a sinner. My, my sins may be different from yours, but it doesn't take a lot of soul searching for me to find out that I'm not nearly as good as many of you think that I am. Those of you that might think that I am. But if I was the Lord, if I was the Lord... I wouldn't be dealing with sin, would I? I mean, I'm not personal sin. I wouldn't be a sinner. And so in my perfection, if you cross me, I'd snap my fingers and fry you. I mean, and don't think that the Lord couldn't do the same. He has all the power to do the same. Laodicea could have been just a grease spot in the road when he was done. But the Lord is more compassionate than I can ever be. And instead of burning them up, he said, hold on. Hold on just a minute. Just listen to me. I've got some advice for you and this will help you. I have something for you that will save your unworthy skins. And I want you to remember this because this is chapter 3. This is not chapter 4 yet. It's not chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 and so on where you find all kinds of bone crushing punishments in those chapters. At the end of the period, in verse number 22, chapter 4 begins, and then it's too late for the compassion of chapter 3. So you need to pay close attention while you're living in chapter 3. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. I want us to look at three areas of discipline that answers to their three areas of self-sufficiency. Now, it's a long introduction, so I only have time just to begin that today. So we're gonna talk about first, he mentions gold here. I counsel thee to buy of me gold. And the gold stands for the discipline of values, the right values. I need Larry Jefferson to help me with this. Because if Larry was here, you wouldn't talk Bitcoin with him. Larry would say, you got to go for the gold. And I don't know how much gold Larry left behind when he died. I think it's, I think it's safe to say that Lino is never going to find that much gold in the river. But I know, I know that, that Larry would also tell you that the gold standard for a Christian is not money. That's not the gold standard. How do we know God doesn't care if we have money? It's because the person who, one of the reasons, the person who pushed the gospel out more than any other person said so. He said to the Corinthian church, Look around you. Do you see who your fellow members are in the church? 1 Corinthians 26, For you see your calling brethren... How that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. The wise, the mighty, and the noble. In the ancient world, those were the people synonymous with wealth. If, you aren't, if you're poor, you can't be wise. You're not worth listening to if you're poor. If you're poor, you can't be mighty. If you're poor, you certainly can't be noble. Well, how different is God's viewpoint? Who is valuable in God's eyes? Not the worldly wise, not the worldly mighty, not the worldly nobility, noble people, not the rich. In fact, didn't he say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven? Do you think anybody told the new Christian Donald Trump anything about that? Probably not, because his, his spiritual advisor, Paula White, is a Laodicean. So, who do you believe is this rich person that the Lord speaks to who can't get into heaven? Well, he's talking about the self-sufficient Laodicean. Now, hold your place there for a minute and turn to James chapter 5, just a few pages back. James chapter 5. How good are riches? How safe are self-sufficient Laodiceans? James tells us. Chapter 5 and verse number 1. Go to now... Ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. You know, I think, that, I think that James must have been talking to Jesus at some point. Corrupting riches, moth-eaten garments, those are two of the wealth points of Laodicea. Verse 3. Your gold and your silver is cankered, and the rest of them shall be a witness against you. And shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. That is another warning. This is the Laodicean age. We're we're fastly approaching the period at the end of verse number 22. Soon it will be chapter 4. And the value system of the worldly church must change sooner or later. Now let me give you an interesting fact about the Bible's viewpoint of riches. Prosperity preachers are are known for their most prodigious lie. God does not want you to be poor. They must have some incredible insight into God's mind to speak for him on this issue. I found that the only way we can speak God's mind is to repeat what God said. What he said is right here. And other than this, I don't have any idea what's on God's mind. In the Old Testament, there were prophets that claimed to speak for God and when they said something contrary to what he said, God said, they don't speak for me! I didn't say that! In the New Testament, it tells us in 2 Timothy that the Scriptures are fully sufficient to know God's mind. And so when the prosperity preacher says, God doesn't want you to be poor, he must have read that in the Bible, didn't he? That's the only place you can find out what's on God's mind. And we're blessed to have the record, and so we can check that out. If God said it, I should be able to find it. Well, I look for that. And I can save you a lot of time, because not in one verse did God say that poverty is spiritually detrimental to any Christian. But surely God doesn't want us to be poor. I mean, if poverty is against what God determines for any Christian, then I should be able to find the verse that tells me, get out of here right now and go try to get rich. I should be able to find that in the Bible. Now, unfortunately, the introduction didn't leave me enough time to explore all that with you today. So as badly as I hate to, I'm gonna stop and I'm gonna ask you to do the preacher's job. I've already told you I checked it out, and I can't find anything like that, but that's not going to do you much good unless you check it out for yourself because you might believe the prosperity preacher. He said something different than I did, so you might, you might believe him, so I would suggest you go check this out yourself. So he says that God doesn't want you to be poor, and he has all kinds of schemes to make you and him rich. So you've got to decide who's telling the truth. Is it him? Is it me? Or better, is it God? So you should be able to find all the support verses that he uses that says that God wants you to be rich. So your, your homework assignment is to take your Bible and see what you can find about wealth and whether Christians in the New Testament were in God's will or are they out of God's will. And if it's God's will for all Christians to be rich, then we should be able to find plenty of these good, wealthy Christians all over the Bible because that's the model for New Testament Christianity. That seems logical to me. Next week we'll compare notes. What did you find? And uh, if you found something different than I found, then we'll choose probably the forum class or some other venue to discuss that. And I want to know where I'm wrong because I find myself out of God's will. And probably you do too if you're not rich. I suspect many of you must be out of God's will if that's what he wants for Christians. So I want to be in God's will, don't you? Do your homework and let's see what God thinks about riches. Now finally, I don't want to leave you without saying Jesus Christ is the one who deserves all glory, honor, and praise and if you, find, if you find a gospel that says differently, if you find something like Robert Shuler said, I'm afraid that's going to lead you into chapter 4. And I'm afraid that it will leave Christ standing outside knocking because he won't accept anybody who thinks self-esteem and self-glory are the ultimate for them. So if you have those kinds of books on your shelf, burn them. My advice to you is to remember this number. Fahrenheit 451. That's the temperature that book paper burns. Burn the books. And then if you have digital copies of those books, send them to your recycle bin, reformat your hard drive, and get rid of it all. Only Jesus can save you. Here's something that the Spirit says to the churches. Listen to it well because it's about Jesus. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Start with that, and then you'll determine who deserves all the glory. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now, confessing our sins and thanking you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace, which is the only way that we can be saved from them. Lord, help us not to turn to the world's goods, not to ourselves, not to riches, not to anything else. We are rich only in the knowledge of you. And though, Lord, we don't deny that some Christians do become rich and you bless them in that way, we also know this, Lord, not to be rich is another blessing from you. You, you make us content in the state that we're in. When we trust you with all of our heart. And that's when we learn. It's those treasures that we lay up in heaven. That are the most important of all. Lord help us to speak to the poor. The downtrodden. The spiritually bankrupt. The gospel. The true gospel. Of Jesus Christ. That they might be saved. That's our job. As your church. And help us to do that Lord. Bless our people today. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. dot